Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. And my title this morning is A Reversal of Religion. And I want to make a singular point, but it's kind of an all-inclusive point. And that is that we need to reverse the common reading of the atonement. And I mean even going back and reading the story of the atonement or the understanding of the temple and the priesthood. The Jewish temple sacrifice is often read as if it serves the economy of death with the priests and people sacrificing to save themselves. And I think this needs to be reversed in light of the sacrifice of Christ. And so the imagery of the temple sacrifice, like the event of the cross, is not that something is sacrificed to God, but that God is sacrificing himself. It is not that the priests were sacrificing to enter God's presence. It is God that is moving toward us and opening his presence to the world. It is not that God is being reconciled to people. It is that all things are being reconciled to God. And this is the picture then that we have in both the book of Ephesians and Colossians. Parallel books saying many of the same things. So let's look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I believe we're facing a decisive moment in our country's history. But we're also facing a decisive moment for the Christian faith there is a divide in the country and I believe there's a religious divide which defines the country according to the Democratic Party convention you know they say America is engaged in an existential battle for the soul of the nation and a moral crusade for return to basic decency I noticed the son of the president Eric Trump responded well these Democrats are crazy And they're going to return the country to socialism, higher taxes, and unfair trade. I think the COVID-19 crisis has only sharpened the political divide. And offering focus on economic survival with Donald Trump, or maybe to state it too simplistically, biological or cultural survival with the future Democratic Party. And so in one party, the death of a few is called for by the economic welfare of the many. And of course, there are always those, you know, some people are always going to be called by the disease. And we have to just expect that the susceptible people, the working poor, 
black people, old people, that's us, <laughs> are the ones that need to be offered up. The counter accusation is that the Democrats would reduce us to socialism and would subvert the key doctrine of American individualism. It's as if two religions or two alternative views are vying for the soul of the nation, and maybe they are. I think the brokenness reflected in this political moment is a journey that Faith and I have experienced personally. You know, we came back to this country, it's been about 15 years, and I think already that we were feeling this split. And then about four years ago, it became clear to us that the institution we were working at had taken a, a hard right turn. I think when we came back and we began working there, there was a chasm that we thought was still bridgeable. But then our dismissal, we were fired, I think it opened a gap. And not just for us, but even with our former colleagues, those we counted as friends. And I've seen this not simply with us, I've seen it in intervening years. I've seen the same divide open up with several of my students. I've witnessed it with acquaintances, people who have lost their jobs, they've lost relationships with family, not just because of politics, that's certainly part of it, but due to the division over religious issues, you know, the religion attached to the politics. And so I think this period of division in our country, it reflects an expanding chasm opening up, I believe within the Christian faith, and here I don't mean just Protestant, it's Roman Catholic, it's Protestant, and it's also Eastern Orthodox, it's just across the board. And there are two interpretive frames one in which economics outweigh the focus on social inequities and human welfare. And here I'm not referring to political parties, but to two theological understandings. Let me explain. In one understanding, maybe what we would think of as the conservative wing of theology. And here I'm using conservative. I believe there's a failure to engage the full generosity or liberality of the gospel. And in this understanding, Christianity is primarily concerned with correcting a failed economy of a divine order. In this story, you know, this is really the story we're all familiar with. God created everything good and human sin spoiled this goodness. And the focus though is not on what went wrong in the world, but how sin offends the justice of God. And of course, given his prerogative of justice and his offended honor, God could have simply wiped out the human race. But since he is merciful, God decided to work out a solution within himself. And so God has a problem, the twofold problem of how to meet the obligation of his offended justice you know, he can't simply forgive as this would violate his justice. And I think this is the controlling factor in this economy. And then how to receive this payment from the quarter in which the injustice occurred, humanity. The idea the debtor must pay the debt. And thus, this is the explanation, the incarnation and the cross in which humanity in Christ offers up the required infinite payment. And notice throughout, I'm describing 
a payment, a debt, you know, an obligation. And of course, people could not have engineered this infinite payment, and so God arranges it through the death of his son. And those who are chosen, or maybe they choose, to be covered by this infinite payment, well then they meet the requirements of God's justice, and they are enabled to go to heaven and to miss hell. And so an infinite payment is made to meet the infinite debt of God's infinite offended honor and God's infinite justice. A lot of infinite. And thus the books are balanced in the divine economic order. And so there's this tight focus on payment and exchange, which its inventor, this is by the way, the innovation of a man named Anselm of Canterbury. And he thought of this and he illustrated it in monetary terms. He says it's just like the exchange of money. Now the irony is that it becomes literally concerned with money and savings with the Protestant Reformation. In Luther's understanding, all people are priests, therefore all vocations have a priestly calling, whether you're a shopkeeper or you're a banker, whatever you do. And the accumulation of wealth then becomes a sign of God's blessing. Now one does not depend on priests or the church to assign blessing as grace comes through hard work and shows itself in accumulated wealth. That is an economic order of salvation translated in the Protestant Reformation into a focus on economics in which the literal accrual of wealth reflects a grace that can be cashed in and credited to one's account. What do we call this? Capitalism, right? This is Max Weber's picture and I've given you a very brief picture of the rise of capitalism. But it should be no surprise that this form of the religion would become narrowly focused on a leader concerned with boosting the economy. There is a limited dimensionality of this religion. And I believe this accounts for the narrow focus of its present political attachment in the right-wing Republican Party. The problem with this theory is that it's a theory, right? It allows for a kind of abstraction or a distancing from the reality in which we live. It's all about an exchange, it's all about debt and numbers. It's a, an abstraction from what happened to Jesus and I believe it's an abstraction from what happens to all of us. It abstracts from the human circumstance and it puts primacy on the heavenly economy which is shadowed forth in the earthly market. And the fact that people crucified Jesus. It was human wrath. It was human anger that killed him. This in some way is rendered inconsequential. And so one keeps score in this system, not by ethics, not by correcting injustices, like crucifying someone, but by meeting the requirements of the law, and the law is thought to reflect God's character. In spite of the fact the New Testament says exactly that's not the case. And so fighting injustice, things like helping the poor, ceasing to steal, cessation of war and murder. 
These might be things we could choose to do, but they're not primary in this religion. In spite of the biblical depiction, you know, well, the law, with its death-dealing letter, Paul says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In spite of that, there is an understanding that the law is primary. And besides, don't the poor deserve what they're getting? As a youth minister at a local church explained to my daughter when she was in high school, the poor show they're not blessed as they are poor. <laughs> it kind of missed one of the beatitudes there, you know. And so this, I, what I've just described to you, it's the story we're all familiar with. It's the economy of salvation of a debt and payment. And it's attached to one particular ethic, what is known as the Protestant work ethic. Virtue pays cash dividends. You know, this is Benjamin Franklin. He says, time is money. And in this value system, well, if you spend your time well, you accumulate. That's a virtue. You accumulate money. And if every calling is a sacred calling, then every occupation deserves our complete devotion, like it was a holy occupation. And piety and work and money they're all interconnected. In fact, in some forms of this, piety and work, you leave out the piety and you just have work and money. And that's modern secularism. That is, Reformation gives rise to capitalism. Capitalism gives rise to secularism. So the rise of a capitalistic religion, I believe, explains this culminating attachment to the vacuity that is Donald Trump. In that, this is the American story and religion. We're all familiar with this. Let me propose a different reading, and I think a more orthodox reading of Scripture. And it's not a theory so much as a direct engagement with the first order problem we have as humans. The root problem, you know, whether it's poverty, social injustice, war, racism, it pertains to the fact that people die. Time is money, and both are valuable commodities only where there are a limited amount of each. And so the gospel is not about working within the economy of death. It is about opening up life to the fullness of God, to creation, and to other people. Through the defeat of death, that's what the last enemy is. That's the role of, the, of Christ's death and resurrection. Rather than setting us to work to prove we are saved in an economy of death, the gospel calls us to act as if death is not a final reality. And this opens up an order in which we can address real world problems associated with the fact that people die. Now, we can picture this contrast as that between a theory, and by the way, that's all Ansel meant by that. He just said, well, let me give you an illustration. Unfortunately, his illustration was so powerful that it's become the explanation. And he never meant for that to happen, I don't believe. So we can have a theory, or I believe we can have a direct engagement with reality. Something we can immediately grasp. I believe Christian atonement and Christianity is something that happens to you. 
It does not depend upon an intervening theory. We don't need to speculate about the movement of the mind of God in theory. We can engage reality. And so a way of approaching the difference is in contrasting pictures of sacrifice. I believe in an artificial economy of sacrifice. And by the way, this notion, God's angry, we have to give him a payment, uh, Christ dies, makes it. You understand that's the pagan notion of sacrifice. What gets sacrificed, you know, in paganism, the enemy, slaves, women? It saves the one who sacrifices. God's justice, in a sense, God himself is preserved or saved. You know, this is the picture in Calvin and Anselm. You have God's wrath, God's love pitted against one another in what is called Calvin's penal substitution. That's a picture in which God is trying to save himself. There is another picture that I think we need to have of sacrifice. Sacrifice is a fine word. But it can also depict a personal event in which it is not the other. We don't sacrifice someone else. God doesn't sacrifice someone else. But it's self-sacrifice, right? That's what love is constituted of. So it's not sacrifice to the economy, it's not preservation of an economy, even a divine economy. And where the economy itself is sacrificed, I think that's what we need to see. I believe we can take up the cross, and this frees us from the economy of death. This is the picture in Isaiah, you know, that the swords will be beat into plowshares. We'll turn from making war to growing food. So let's go back. I think we just need to go back and rethink the Jewish temple. In this, sacrifice is often read as if the priests and the people are sacrificing the animals to save themselves. I think we need to reverse this and read it in light of the sacrifice of Christ. The imagery of the temple sacrifice, like the event of the cross, is not that something is sacrificed to God, but that God, in fact, is sacrificing himself. That's what's happening in Christ. The goat, you know, that the high priest would take into the temple, the name of that goat was literally the Lord. And it's taken into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed by the high priest. And the high priest puts a phylactery, a sign on his forehead or on his arm. And on that Phylactery is engraved four letters, Y-H-W-H, the unpronounceable name of God. And so the high priest is taking the role of God in the sacrifice of the Lord. That's the temple imagery. As the first century Jewish philosopher Philo says, the high priest represents the world, a microcosm, the high priest represents God taking on the cloak of the material world. That is, in the temple imagery, we can already see the picture of the incarnation of Christ. You know how the priest goes through the veil, and then he comes out of the veil, and when he comes back out, he's changed his robe. He's changed his robe into the same material as the curtain of the veil. 
Here's the way Josephus describes this curtain. He says it was a Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple of a contexture that was truly wonderful. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation, but was of a of image of the universe, of the material universe. This curtain had also embroidered upon it a panorama of the heavens. Do you get the image? God passing out of the Holy of Holies into the material universe. This is what the Book of Wisdom says. Those garments were woven figures of the universe. The long robe was representative of the whole world. It depicted the glories of the fathers. And these were engraved on the four rows of stones that were on the majesty or on the diadem of the high priest. You see the reversal? It's not men approaching God, but in fact it's God coming to people, coming to the world, entering the universe, cloaked with the universe. And in this reversal, the atonement is not about bringing the priest and people before God. It's just the opposite movement. It's God coming out into the world. It is the Lord, the priest represents, who emerges to set the people free from the result of their sin, which is division from God, which is death, which is alienation. From out of the place beyond creation, you know, that's the Holy of Holies, the priest would emerge as God himself emerging through the veil of the material world. There is a crossing of the divine human divide that's been created by humans that is undone. That's the picture of the temple, but that's the event of the cross. Now what did the priest do when he came out of the temple? He would take the blood of that goat, the Lord, right? And he would sprinkle it on the elements of the temple. And the temple, of course, represents the cosmos, the world itself. Remember the saying, the life is in the blood? What life? Well, God is the giver of life. God's life is unleashed onto creation so that the healing of redemption, it's not an inward movement, it's not an upward movement, it's not the departure of humans from the earthly world, but it's an outward movement of the arrival of God. God is acting to save his people from sin and death, and they are freed up to participate in his redemptive activity. This is the seventh day activity. So, that's the reversal. The temple had represented for the Jews the dwelling place of God on earth. It was a living illustration of the relationship between heaven and earth. And the divide between heaven and earth is broken down. This is Paul's picture. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. The dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of humans, the world, are brought together. This is Psalm 78, 69. God built his sanctuary, the temple, like the heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. Rabbi Phinehas describes it, the house of the holy of holies is made to correspond to the highest heaven. The outer holy house was made to correspond to the earth, 
and the courtyard was made to correspond to the sea. And so the picture here is the microcosmos. You know that you remember in the temple imagery there's the bronze lavers that contain the sea and it literally contained thousands of gallons of water that is meant to represent the sea. This is in 1 Kings and Chronicles and Jeremiah. And then there were the seven lamps of the menorah inside the holy place. They represent the seven visible planets. And of course Jesus saw the temple as a bringing together of heaven and earth that he accomplishes. He is the true temple. He is the dwelling place of God on earth. The foundation stone, the beginning of a new temple, the new creation. He is the sole place of sacrificial worship in the new covenant. And he saw his disciples as becoming a new priesthood. And so let me conclude just with a few scriptures that point this out. Jesus' description, when Nathanael comes to him and Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathanael. And Nathanael said, oh, well, you must be the Messiah. And Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these, he said to them. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is here picturing two Old Testament prophecies. Daniel's vision of the Son of Man and Jacob's vision of the ladders going up and down to heaven. You know, at his trial, one of the accusations that's brought against Jesus. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands. And in three days, I will build another made without hands. Not made with hands. It's a direct quotation from Daniel in which Daniel describes the coming of a mysterious stone that is cut by no human hand. Daniel describes the stone and then in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. God is establishing his kingdom. All kingdoms will then cease, and this kingdom will endure. I tell you, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. He says that to his disciples. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. So it is Christ who is the true high priest who fulfills God's emergence from out of the origins of the Holy of Holies, from out of creation. Christ is the true mediator, the true temple, the true sacrifice. Here is the sacrifice that takes away the division, the, the dividing wall. John is depicting in his gospel the creation event. It begins with the birth of Jesus. The recreation begins with the ministry of Jesus. And you know the final words of Jesus before his death in John. They're the, the words, it is finished. 
But where do we see those words? In Genesis, after the days of creation, God says it's finished and it's good. John is saying the recreation is finished. The recreation of the world, that salvation is complete then in this recreation. And so the implication is that we have to do not with an economy of death in heaven and reflected on earth, but with creation completed in salvation. The contrast with the economy, you know, which becomes the Protestant work ethic. I believe it's passage out of the sixth day work week into the seventh day of, you know, this is the writer of Hebrews. It's no longer a life of toil and work, but it's a life of the seventh day of redemption. I think that's the contrast between the two religions of the day. It is a continued, you know, one religion is a continuing working to escape death in the economy of substitutionary sacrifice. And the, the other economy is the presumption that self-sacrifice is something we're now afforded to do in imitation of Christ. The former demands work and consumption, presuming that the wrath of God and divine justice are primary. The latter abandons this zero-sum game in recognition it's human wrath and justice that are defeated in the death of Christ. God does not require satisfaction. God does not require substitution. People do. It is this human wrath and violence projected onto God which imagines human sacrifice assuages God's anger. God does not benefit from the death of Christ. We are the beneficiaries. And this is the realization that we take up in the Christian life. I believe in this political, this cultural moment, we are faced not just with a political choice, but with a religious choice. The religion of the day, I believe, joined to a politic preserving this world's economy, it's divided itself off from Christian orthodoxy this division, this chasm that has opened up in our culture, it reflects the splintering of the Christian faith. I don't think it's entirely negative because the emptiness of an unorthodox, of a heterodox, of a heretical religion is being revealed throughout our nation. It's a steep price that we're all paying. Hundreds of thousands of lives, I believe, are being sacrificed to this false religion. There's a clear division, however, being made between a false and true gospel. God himself has entered creation to redeem it. And as we engage this redemptive creation, we recognize salvation defeats death. It engages death. It doesn't succumb to death. And the death-dealing nature of the human economy, it does not control us. It does not divinize or project this economy onto God. It does not seek to sacrifice to it, but it moves beyond it to the real world of relief of human suffering, a relief from poverty, a relief from all that ails us spiritually and physically. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. 
You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.